It's Thursday, September 15th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, China has discovered a new lunar mineral and further dispatches from space, including the asteroid that NASA is intentionally crashing into next week. Plus, a trans DIY retelling of the Joker that got pulled from the Toronto International Film Festival after just one screening. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. China has discovered a new mineral on the moon. Found among samples brought back from their 2020 Chang'e 5 lunar mission, the transparent crystal was confirmed as a new mineral last week by the Commission on New Minerals Nomenclature and Classification, or CNMNC. Chang'e 5 was the first mission to return lunar samples to Earth since Russia's Luna program in 1976. As such, many new discoveries are likely to continue as new technology is applied to these more recent samples. At the start of this year, samples returned from Chang'e 5 were able to confirm findings that that lunar lander had spotted surface water on the moon while it was there, marking the first spacecraft to detect water on the Moon in real time. And now, another discovery. This mineral, dubbed Chang'e-site Y, after the Chinese goddess of the moon that the Chang'e lunar mission is also named after, is a phosphate and columnar crystal that is super tiny, with a diameter of just 10 microns, or less than the width of a human hair. Quoting Vice, Shanga site Y is the sixth new mineral to be identified in moon samples, and the first to be discovered by China. Before China, only the US and Russia could claim to have discovered a new moon mineral. It is a transparent crystal that formed in a region of the northern lunar near face that was volcanically active about 1.2 billion years ago. End quote. And in addition to the new mineral, these lunar samples also contain helium-3, the much-hyped helium isotope that some scientists believe could be one of the best fuel sources for nuclear fusion. Quoting New Atlas, with two protons and just one neutron, it's unique as the only known stable isotope of any element that's got more protons than neutrons. Theoretically, a deuterium-slash-helium-3 fusion reaction would liberate 164.3 megawatt-hours of energy per gram of helium-3. And crucially, neither the helium-3 or its reaction products are radioactive, so they wouldn't turn reactor components into radioactive nuclear waste disposal headaches like a deuterium-tritium reactor will. There are downsides. A helium-3 fusion reactor will need to operate at much higher temperatures than a tritium reactor, for example, and helium-3 is extremely rare and difficult to isolate on Earth. Indeed, the main way it's produced today is by waiting for tritium in nuclear warheads and related stockpiles to decay, then drawing it off in tiny amounts, totaling about 15 kilograms or 33 pounds per year. It's naturally present in the Earth's atmosphere, but at tiny 7.2 parts per trillion concentrations. It's also present in primordial gases in the Earth's mantle, but that's generally inaccessible. The moon's surface is believed to contain as much as 1.1 million metric tons of helium-3. According to the International Policy Digest, that represents around one and a half quadrillion dollars worth of resources. 
And an opportunity summarized by Ouyang Ziyuan, head of the Chinese Lunar Exploration Program, as a transformational fusion energy opportunity. He says each year, three space shuttle missions could bring enough fuel for all human beings around the world. End quote. But the idea of lunar mining for helium-3 is not without controversy, least of which due to its jaw-dropping price tag. As New Atlas points out, you'd probably need to process 150 tons of regolith just to get a single gram of helium-3. That is a huge operation. And all that said, nuclear fusion reactions as an energy source has still yet to be achieved. When it is, it will still be a while before, if ever, it's rolled out on a large enough scale to make the kind of impact that many people envision. And as New Atlas puts it, if fusion researchers manage to successfully harness the 600 million degree temperatures required for helium-3 fusion, they could be close to achieving the billion degree temperatures that are required for hydrogen-boron fusion, a significantly cheaper and more abundant fuel source that some fusion companies are already attempting to work with. For better or worse, the dream of clean energy from nuclear fusion reactions will always be alive in helium-3. An investigation into its availability on the moon for that purpose is a stated goal of China's lunar exploration program, which has missions mapped out for the rest of the decade, not unlike NASA's Artemis program. China's Chang'e 6 mission in 2024 will attempt to collect rock samples from the far side of the moon, a site from which samples have never been brought back. Chang'e 7, also slated for 2024, will head to the lunar south pole to test a myriad of different spacecraft and gear while inspecting craters for water ice. Chang'e 8 in 2027 will focus on testing in-situ resource utilization, things like oxygen extraction and 3D printing from regolith. After that, Chinese astronauts will return to the moon to begin their International Lunar Research Station, flying aboard a next-generation crew launch vehicle akin to SpaceX's Falcon Heavy. In other words, China will be nipping at NASA's heels. And speaking of NASA's lunar missions, the latest word from a few days ago is that NASA is targeting Tuesday, September 27th for another Artemis 1 launch attempt, with October 2nd currently under review as a backup date. It sounds like they are still awaiting approval on their request to the U.S. Space Force to extend the battery rating for the flight termination system. The flight termination system activates in the event of an emergency or problem during launch and therefore has safety requirements around being tested every 20 days. The agency already got an extension from 20 to 25 days, but have now asked for more than 40 days. And the reason for the extension is that testing those batteries at the moment seems to be the only task that cannot be completed on the launch pad and can only be done at the vehicle assembly building. And the team is trying to avoid having to return the rocket to the vehicle assembly building due to the amount of time and resources it takes to accomplish that. In the meantime, NASA is crashing a spacecraft into an asteroid on September 26th and will live stream the whole thing. I did a larger segment on this back when the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, or DART, launched in November of last year. But basically, DART is a mission to test the hypothesis that we could alter the orbital trajectory of asteroids by giving them a little nudge. 
Quoting Gizmodo, On September 26th, a 1,376-pound probe will attempt to smash into a tiny asteroid at speeds approaching 15,000 miles per hour. The tiny asteroid, Dimorphos, poses no threat to Earth, but by altering its orbital trajectory, NASA will have successfully tested a viable strategy for shoving dangerous asteroids from harm's way using kinetic impactors. Dimorphos orbits a slightly larger asteroid called Didymos. The mission aims to alter that orbit." End quote. DART will be destroyed in the process, but like the ultimate influencer, it will be capturing its final moments with its onboard optical navigation camera. The Italian space agency's Lucia Cube's onboard cameras, Luke and Leia, will also be taking color images from a safe distance. So, we won't actually have video, but we will have plenty of images which NASA will be sharing during their live coverage the evening of September 26th. It could be an exciting teaser for the Artemis 1 launch the next morning, though, as usual, don't get your hopes up for that launch attempt going through. Any number of fixes they're working on could not pan out, and Space Force could still pull the plug by not approving that waiver. But at least we'll get to watch an asteroid collision next week, no matter what. On Tuesday the 13th at midnight, a completely bonkers maximalist retelling of a modern classic and highly safeguarded story premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival, and it may never be seen again. The People's Joker, from writer, director, and star Veer Drew, billed itself as an illegal, queer, coming-of-age comic book movie. But Drew insists it's not really illegal. She and others say it falls under fair use. She just called it illegal to get people's attention. Which, now that Warner Brothers sent a cease and desist letter and all subsequent showings of the film at TIFF have been cancelled, it certainly has gotten our attention. Here's how Sam Adams, one of the rare few journalists who got a chance to see the movie at that single screening, summarized the film for Slate. Quote, The movie stars Drew, who also wrote and directed, as Joker the Harlequin, a trans woman trying to break into Gotham City's underground comedy scene. Along the way, she joins forces with Oswald Cobblepot, aka the Penguin, and enters an emotionally manipulative relationship with a character based on Jason Todd, aka Robin, a trans man who was once Bruce Wayne's underage ward and was groomed to be his lover. The movie riffs on and quotes liberally from several Batman movies with a special fondness for the campy, less loved installments directed by Jewel Shoemaker. Shoemaker's Batman Forever is the source of young Joker's trans awakening when she realizes during a love scene between Val Kilmer and Nicole Kidman that she wants to be Nicole, but it twists those scenes to its own ends, as when it recreates Harley Quinn's tumble into a tank of acid from Suicide Squad, but has the character plunge into a vat of concentrated estrogen instead. It's impossible to describe everything The People's Joker does in its densely packed 92 minutes, especially since it's assembled in a disjunctive style that flouts the rules of narrative as much as it does the laws that govern intellectual property. The live-action scenes often play out in front of digital backdrops, and the flesh-and-blood characters share the screen with digital avatars in a wide variety of styles. 
The end credits list more than a dozen animation teams who seem to have been given free reign without much concern for how the end product would fit together. There's a Lorne Michaels stand-in who looks like a nude mannequin and is voiced by a female actor who runs a weekly comedy TV show called UCB Live. The letters are short for United Clown Brigade. End quote. A couple of notes, that female actor who voices Lorne Michaels is, ironically, played by body horror comedian and current Saturday Night Live cast member Sarah Sherman. And the disjointed style comes in part from what was essentially a crowdsourced film. When Drew first announced the idea for the movie online, she invited any and all quarantined, out-of-work musicians, actors, artists, and more to contribute to the film, truly making it the people's joker. That and the trans narrative is why Katie Reif over at Polygon, who also got to see the movie at its lone screening, believes it should fall under fair use. Quoting Rife, Vera's vision of DC Comics' signature villain the Joker as a metaphor for the trans experience certainly should be covered by fair use and parody under the First Amendment, which protects creators' right to use what's now known as existing IP for comic effect. The key here is that a parody has to significantly transform that IP to make it clear that it isn't an official release from the rights owner. Not a problem when it comes to Vera's wholly unique film. End quote. Now, I have not seen the film, but based on the trailer, it does look like a ton of DC imagery and possibly straight-up clips from previous Batman, Joker, and Suicide Squad movies are being used. You know, this is not just a retelling of the character. The actual imagery is there. And fair use is a murky realm at best, and I do feel like Warner Brothers could have a pretty easy case here. That said, both narrative and style-wise, no one could mistake this for something made by Warner Brothers. I mean, for one, it's a trans actor playing a trans lead character in a film that avoids all the overdone tropes of the cis gays. Warner Brothers would never. Further, Drew has filmmaking chops, but leans towards the experimental, and that seems to have been on full display in The People's Joker, with many live-action scenes literally shot on a green screen at her house, and quoting Rife again, deliberately crude 8-bit animations that replace expensive special effects, turning the film's DIY origins into a brain-breaking punchline, end quote. As Adams from Slate points out, the movie is an unabashed, chaotic assault on everything. Intellectual property, the mainstream comedy scene, conventional ideas about narrative and cohesive filmmaking style. Adams says, quote, Its bomb-throwing approach might be the most sustained attack on corporate image ownership since a 20-something Todd Haynes made Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story, which used Barbie dolls to depict the chirpy pop star's fatal struggle with anorexia, end quote. And, well, yeah, doesn't that just make it the most apropos Joker movie ever? How much more reflective of the character could you get than challenging every single part of the process and industry in the most brash and obvious way possible? Respect for that, I suppose. Quoting again from Rife in Polygon, In an age where corporate IP has become a de facto religion in global cinema culture, The People's Joker is a blasphemous Molotov cocktail of a movie, with a unique and valuable point of view. And it's hilarious, too. 
end quote. Now, Adams does point out that if Warner Brothers and Disney hadn't swooped in like they have with so many properties, the Joker as a character would have entered the public domain quite a while ago, having been first introduced in 1940. Which, I'm not actually positive the math and law holds up with that statement, but the point slightly remains about having corporate rights holders continuing to cling on to characters that we could be seeing explored in many more unique and diverse ways. The People's Joker is a peek into that world, a world where these characters who have essentially become the figures of our modern myths are actually free for the rest of us to play with and to share with each other. Really, The People's Joker is fan fiction in indie film form that managed to break through to an international film festival thanks to a few festival and industry folks that truly believed in it and fought for its inclusion. By getting a platform, it was playing with fire, more than fanfiction that never escapes from internet browsers. But at the same time, joke's kind of on Warner Brothers, because tons of us who never heard of and probably would never have heard of The People's Joker are now dying to see it. I guess killing Batgirl wasn't enough. Warner Brothers had to off the Joker too. And even though the film was pulled from the festival and any future screenings are unknown for the moment, it does seem like attendees of the Toronto International Film Festival are still able to vote for it for the People's Choice Award, which would be a pretty hilarious outcome and so appropriately chaotic. All right, well, that is going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.